You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, You couldn't pay me to live in West Virginia. You could try, but you'd have to pay me more than the $12,000 West Virginia is right now offering people to relocate to that state. And they do need people. They need more people in West Virginia. The state has been shrinking for decades. The population of the United States more than doubled between 1950 and today from 150 million people to 330 million people, 2 million people lived in West Virginia in 1950. Only 1.8 million people live there today. Healthcare, infrastructure, the economy, education, the state ranks last or close to last in all those categories. So getting people to move there, it can't be easy, which is why West Virginia is bribing people to move there or sweetening the pot. Move there and the state will give you 10K in your first year, another 2K in your second year. That kind of money, $12,000 in two years, would go a long way toward helping, say, immigrants settle in West Virginia. Immigrants have revived a lot of small towns in Washington State, where I live, over the last couple of decades. But West Virginia does not want immigrants. West Virginia voted for Donald fucking Trump by 40 fucking points in 20 fucking 20. West Virginia wants highly educated tech workers, not highly motivated immigrants. Immigrants, they start new businesses at higher rates than people who were born here, less likely to commit violent crimes than people who were born here, but West Virginia doesn't want any of that. They want tech people, remote workers, entrepreneurs. They want highly educated people, but the kind of highly educated people who want their kids to go to schools where they don't teach evolution and their teachers aren't vaccinated. Those highly educated people. Joe Jeffries was elected to West Virginia's State House of Delegates in 2018 to do something about West Virginia's falling population. He's a family guy, conservative, Christian, West Virginians for Life, and the Family Council of West Virginia, two anti-choice, anti-gay organizations, endorsed him. He sponsored a bill when he got into the House of Delegates that would ban sex education in West Virginia, any mention of sex in schools, because he was very, very angry to learn that some school sex ed programs acknowledge the existence of gay kids. It will come as no surprise to anyone that Joe Jeffries is an asshole. I mean, he is a Republican elected official, and I am talking about him on the top of my podcast. Of course, he's an asshole. He was required to wear a mask in the state capitol during the pandemic and showed up with a mesh mask. And he brags about his endorsement from West Virginians for Health Freedom, which is a group of anti-vax crackpots that encourages parents not to get their kids vaccinated because pro-life until birth. I can't keep track of all the Republican assholes out there introducing bad bills in state legislatures all over the country. There are hundreds of them, thousands of them, and only one of me. But Jeffries did something last week that got him onto my radar and surprise, 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 it was not sucking a dick. He was giving sex advice. He was doing some gonzo sex ed, I guess, on TikTok, which is an online video sharing app popular with teenagers, with high school students, with the same people Jeffries doesn't want getting sex ed or having access to birth control or abortion services or information about being gay in schools. He was putting stuff out there, though, on this platform 
where kids, teens, including in West Virginia, congregate. Anyway, here's a taste, courtesy of independent West Virginia journalist Aaron Beck. Here's a taste, one of Jeffrey's videos. He's sitting in a car, leering at the camera, and he says... All these women be out here talking about how a man never hits the G-spot. Have you ever hit his? Okay. It's not every day that an anti-gay, pro-life state rep endorses anal play with dudes on the receiving end. Now, I wish, I really wish I could play the video that Jeffrey's made about cunnilingus for you, but it's not out there. Jeffrey set his TikTok to private right after the shit hit the fan, and that one didn't get copied or saved or reposted. Reporters at WOWK CBS 13 News saw it and said it was too vulgar to even describe. So thank goodness for West Virginia Metro News. They were not afraid to go there. They have the transcript, which I shall now read. A woman looking at the camera says they, presumably she's referring to men here, they say sit on your face. Do you, men, mean sit or hover? Jeffrey's answers. So here's the thing, lady. I can't do his accent. I'm just going to do me. Here's the thing, ladies. If he's not pushing you up, gasping for air, then you are probably doing it wrong. You should be rubbing that thing all over his face like hard. His nose should be shoving your clit so far back up inside of you that it drives you wild. Sit, not hover. Sit, push down all your weight. He'll take care of the rest. Joe Jeffries is in a lot of trouble right now. All those conservative Christian organizations in West Virginia that endorsed him, they've stayed silent. They haven't rescinded their endorsements, not yet. But his Republican colleagues stripped him of his committee assignments, and the governor of West Virginia has called on him to resign. The Republican Party put out a statement condemning him. And he is all anyone on West Virginia Twitter is talking about right now. But no one's talking about the sex advice he gave, which, you know, in my professional opinion, not bad. I mean, vulgar, but, you know, as sex advice goes, not bad. He endorsed penetration play for straight guys with straight guys on the receiving end of the penetration. The prostate is what people are talking about when they refer to the male G-spot, and there's only one way to find it, and that's by going in. And I believe I've given similar advice to women about cunnilingus, about sitting on guys' Faces, don't be shy, ladies. Grind, grind, grind. But I am not a Republican state legislator, and my work has never been endorsed by the Family Council of West Virginia or any other state. But I do qualify, as someone who works remotely, for the money West Virginia is willing to pay people to move there. Can't say, as I'm tempted, maybe a few more zeros to the left of that decimal point might do it, but it's nice to know that if I did move there, there's at least one guy in West Virginia who might be able to find my G-spot. All right, coming up on today's show on both the micro and magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast, John McWhorter is here to talk about his new book, Nine Dirty Words. We talk on the micro. That conversation continues on the magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. And while you're online subscribing to the Savage Lovecast Magnum Edition, why not take a moment to pre-order Savage Love from A to Z, a new book-length collection of adults-only essays celebrating the 30th anniversary of Savage Love, the column. Go to savagelovecast.com slash shop to pre-order your copy of Savage Love A to Z today. Those books go on sale September 21st. 
And now your calls and John McWhorter on today's Lovecast. Hi, Dan. Late 30s cis straight male in the Pacific Northwest calling in. So I have been married for a couple of years. Uh, My wife and I have been together about five-ish now. And uh, while at the initial beginning of our relationship, uh, everything was fantastic, just madly in love with her. And my wife and I had this amazing sexual connection. That's really, really fallen apart. And I I think in part pushed on by being so uh, locked in with each other during COVID lockdown. But it's got to the point where our sex life has completely fallen apart. And my wife has said that she has no attraction to me whatsoever. Uh, This is really difficult for me. I had a partner previously who was somewhere on the asexuality spectrum, and that became a big source of conflict in our relationship. And it's very difficult when I am still very attracted to my wife and try to reach out for moments of intimacy and am met, if not with revulsion, disinterest, uh, which, you know, is not very good for the ego. We've been trying to see if there's anything that we can do about it, but it doesn't seem to be helping. And it's not helped by the fact that, you know, my wife has had a lot of different sexual experiences. So she feels very much that it's not as if there's new sexual things that she could explore with me that might be interesting. She's kind of disinterested in that. Uh, Our relationship is also open. And while I'm very happy for her to go out and have experiences with people, uh, especially doing things that I am not super interested in, you know, I I don't uh, begrudge her any pleasure or joy she can find in that. I'm definitely not interested in our relationship being open just so I can have that sexual connection with somebody else that feels like she's delegating the sex part of our relationship elsewhere. And frankly, I'm not interested in that in my uh, primary partner. We're in counseling and uh, sort of through talking with our counselor, it was really hit home that I see sex as being a big part of uh, love for me. It's a big part of that connection. And so not having that bit of the connection has made me feel further and further away from my wife, whereas she feels sex as more of a way of connecting with people, but not necessarily something that's something she's into once that connection has been established. So for her, sex is more about discovery and being admired and seeing the unknown. And as many things as I might try to do, I I can't make myself another person. So, yeah, I'm just looking for any suggestions you might have. Um, I very much love my wife, and I would love to stay with her. I would love to be able to have a history with her. And I can only hope that as things open up uh, with COVID winding down, that you know we'll be able to find new ways of connecting with each other. You're halfway there. You recognize that you can't turn yourself into someone else. You can't make yourself into another person. What you have to accept is that you can't make your wife into someone else. You can't turn her into another person. You're going to have to listen to what she's telling you. And what she's telling you, I guess, we've been hearing about demisexuals for a while. Now we're hearing about fray sexuals, fray sexuality. Those are people who lose interest in a sex partner. The more they get to know them, the more intimate the relationship becomes, the less interested they are in someone Sexually, And what your wife is telling you in all respects is that she's a 
very sexual. We used to call those people emotionally stunted assholes. Now we know it's a sexual orientation and we shouldn't shame them. She can't connect with you sexually. She's made it clear that for her, sex is about adventure, novelty, risk-taking, making a connection, but something about a lasting connection. Yeah, the erotic interest, the erotic tension, the connection drains away for her. Maybe she didn't know that when she made a commitment to you five years ago. Maybe that commitment explicitly or implicitly at the time included a promise of an ongoing sustained sexual connection. She knows it now. She's made it clear to you now in therapy. I also want to cite here, of course, the research, Dr. Wednesday Martin, she's been on the show a bunch. Studies into female sexuality have shown that a woman's sexual interest in a male partner in a committed relationship, particularly a monogamous committed relationship, falls off faster than a male sexual interest in a female sexual partner. That women are, despite everything we've been told, to the contrary, wired for novelty and new experiences. And a long-term committed sexually exclusive relationship can really snuff out a woman's libido. But that's not the case here. Your wife isn't in an exclusive, committed, monogamous sexual relationship. She's in an open relationship. So she can seek novelty and newness elsewhere and still have you. And yet she isn't interested in you. And yet her libido, where you're concerned, still seems pretty extinguished, which points to not boredom as the problem, but your wife's neosexual orientation, very sexual. And so now... You have to make a decision about whether you want to stay in a companionate marriage where you are both free to seek sex, sex partner, sexual connections elsewhere. You said it was open. You said your marriage was open. You didn't say if it was polyamorous. If it's polyamorous, it would be possible for you to have an ongoing, sustained romantic, emotional, and sexual connection with somebody who isn't, like your wife, a sexual. Perhaps, if you were willing But if you're not willing to settle for that kind of marriage, for a polyamorous marriage, for a polyamorous relationship with your wife that's sexless and companionate and sexual connections, including strong, emotional, romantic sexual connections with other partners, then you're going to have to end this. No amount of dragging your wife back into therapy and trying to talk her into being someone she's already told you she isn't is going to change her just like Her laying this shit down in front of you didn't change you. So that brings us, as so many questions and problems do, to price of admission conversations. Is that the price of admission you're willing to pay to stay in this marriage? To accept that you can't change your wife and to adjust your own expectations and seek what you need outside the marriage while staying in the marriage. And if that's not a price of admission that you're willing to pay, you're going to have to Get the fuck out. And hopefully your wife, if she didn't know this about herself before you two married, knows this about herself now and will, before she makes another long-term commitment to someone else who might expect that that long-term commitment, romantic commitment, a marriage-type commitment, includes sex, that she makes it clear that it won't. And she'll find somebody in the future who wants what she wants or is capable of what she's capable of which is a sustained companion, a committed relationship, companionate marriage, but not a sustained sexual connection as a component of that marriage. But if that's what you want, and it is, it's what you want. It's what you said you want. Want from marriage. Okay, that's what you want from marriage. You're going to have to seek a different wife 
to get that from. Because the wife you've got now can't give you that in the marriage you're in now. So, good luck. Hi, Dan. This is 35-year-old straight woman calling from Israel. I need an advice. For a year, uh, I was dating a man, and uh, it was a great relationship. We became really close friends. He broke up with me because uh, he says that he doesn't feel what he really wants to feel. He doesn't feel in love enough, but we try to stay friends because I think we are each other's best friends. But while we were dating, there was this girl at his work. She's 10 years younger than me, and she was trying to get him to bed. And she was seducing him, and she was sending him pictures of her sex toys and all the time implying that he should come by to her place. And at one point, we were broken up for a week so he could process his feelings. But at the time, he went to her place, and he says they didn't kiss or have sex. But I think there was something else, probably. Before that, he invited her to his place for innocent drinks that also were not so innocent, as you can understand. And after we've broken up, he slept with her. And it really hurt me and triggered me. And I feel like all the good things that we had together while being together, being intimate and being honest and getting to know each other, all of it now... To me, he's poisoned with her presence and him enjoying her trying to get him to bed. I wish I could see it in another way. Maybe you can tell me how I should feel about it. Because I don't know. I don't know if I can trust him again. And if I cannot trust him, I cannot be his friend. And I don't want to lose him and all the good memories that we made while we were together. If you're going to stay friends with someone, if you're going to have a friendship after a breakup, that means you're going – which is totally optional. You don't have to do that. You can part ways and not be bitter and consider the relationship a success and decide that for all sorts of different reasons that you can't have a friendship with your ex. But if you are going to have a friendship and stay in each other's lives, that means you're going to watch the person who dumped you, if you were the one who got dumped – Date other people, fuck other people, fall in love with other people, feel more strongly about other people than they felt about you. And that can be really painful, particularly if that person is fucking somebody else that you felt violated by while you were still in your relationship. And that's the case here. Look, I, I, I'm sorry. I just have to, to, to say this. When you guys were still together and he took some time off to sort out his feelings and he went to this woman's house, the woman who was sending him pictures of her sex toys and asking him to come over, they totally fucked. The feelings he was sorting out were sexual feelings. And don't be naive. Of course he fucked her when he went to her place and then he had her over to his place. And he's lied to you about that, perhaps to – Spare your feelings, but you don't have to pretend to believe him when he tells you such a transparent lie. So what do you do with that? There's this person that you really love, 
duh, hopefully past tense, but still want to be friends with. And he's lied to your face. He asked you to basically give him a hall pass. I want to take a break, sort out my feelings. I'm going to go fuck this one. I'm going to come back. He asked you for a hall pass to fuck the 10 years younger woman and then came back to you and then ended the relationship. What do you do? Well, I think you stop hanging out with that person. I think you stop being friends with that person. Not because they're a terrible person. Maybe they did some bad things. They lied to you. Everyone's capable of doing bad things. There's probably some people you've been in relationships with over the course of your life that you didn't behave perfectly honorably with at every moment. We're all capable of shitty, selfish, dickful or twatful thinking. So you show him the door. You escort him out of your life. It's too painful for you to watch this guy that on some level you probably wanted to get back together with. He broke up with you and you wanted to stay friends. And like a lot of people get dumped who stay friends with their exes. Maybe you were hoping that he would come around and you guys would get back together. But him pursuing this woman has made it clear that that's not what he wants. So it's not what you're going to get. So maybe the reason that you were wanting to be friends with him isn't operable anymore and you should let it go. Let go of the false hope that you might get back together again, but also let go of the friendship that you were continuing to invest in, sustaining in hopes that maybe you get back together again. That doesn't mean if you ask him to exit your life, if you cut him off or just fade away, that you can't have the memories. You don't have to have him around to have the memories. You don't have to have him in your life as a friend to have good memories about the relationship you had with him. You can have the fucking memories. You don't have to have him standing there, salting the wound, telling you about his new girlfriend, the 10 years younger woman from work who was sending him pictures of sex toys when she knew he was involved with someone else, namely you. Keep the memories and the friendship. Hi, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 22-year-old bi woman living on the East Coast, and I had a question about special guests. So I'm in a relationship with a straight man, and I for, first and foremost, I just want to clarify this for the audience. Not all pe- bi people are like this, but I personally do really miss having se- like sexual intimate time with women. And I brought this up to my boyfriend and asked about opening the relationship. And he said he was down. The only thing is that he would only want it to be threesomes. And I'm completely okay with that. I feel like it would be really cool collaborating with him. Very sexy. So I'm down with it. The only thing is I have not had a sexual relationship with a woman in a long time. And I have a lot of nerves surrounding it. So I asked him if it would be fine if I just had a one-on-one with the special guest first. And then we could do the threesomes. That way I could just have that time to acclimate to the whole situation. He said that was fine. But the only thing he's worried about is our special guest ditching us before we actually get to the threesome I said that we could all get together and meet up with a potential special guest and talk about what we want. But at the end of the day, I can't really control her actions. So I'm just wondering if you think this is a viable model for the type of open relationship that we want. 
sounds like a perfectly viable model for the open relationship that you want. So long as your boyfriend can wrap his head around the, let's just call it a likelihood. So he's braced for it, that the first woman you find that you're interested in, who's open to the idea of a threesome with you and your boyfriend and up for hooking up with you first, she may bail. She may not enjoy sex with you. That sometimes happens. I'm sure sex with you is amazing and awesome, but of course that's a subjective judgment, a subjective experience. She may decide she doesn't want to hook up with you again, boyfriend or no boyfriend, and bail. That's a risk. But there's a reward for your boyfriend if you know she comes through, if she wants to have that threesome. And that reward, the threesome, the girl, girl, boy, bye threesome, that's a pretty awesome reward. It's on a lot of guys – top 10 list or top two list of sexual experiences they'd like to have. And so he should be willing to run that. I don't want to call it a small risk. I think you should go to him and say, this is a considerable risk. This could happen. Let's game out how you're going to feel. If I get to fuck some girl and then no threesome results from that. And if he's going to be super angry, well, then not a viable model for an open relationship. But if he can project himself into that circumstance and he can say, well, I'll be disappointed, but I won't be angry. I won't take it out on you. And of course he can say those things. And then in the moment it might not be true, but it's likelier that he'll hit those emotional marks. If he's projected himself into that possibility and committed to hitting those emotional marks, you have to allow him to be disappointed, but he can't be vindictive. He can't be angry. He can't be butt sore about it because he knew that this was a risk going in and he knew that this risk was worth it because the reward would be so tremendous. And even if the first woman that you meet up with and you have sex with in anticipation of having a threesome with your boyfriend later, if she doesn't come through, if that doesn't happen, doesn't mean it won't happen with the second woman or the third woman. He will eventually get his reward. So, you know, if I were him, I would – Wait very patiently for this to happen and be very excited about the reward that was coming my way, if not the first time you hooked up with another woman, certainly within the first few times you hooked up with other women. So you're asking me if I think this is a viable open relationship model for you and your boyfriend, and I'm going to kick that back to you. You know your boyfriend better than I do. How does he handle a disappointment? If he can handle it well, if he can roll with it, if he can keep it in perspective, if he can keep his expectations in check, if he doesn't feel entitled to everything that anybody gets or that you get, okay, yeah, this could work. If, however, he's none of those things, if he's likely, if you're worried, that's why you're calling me, he's likely to react angrily and feel as if he's been cheated out of what he was promised if it doesn't work out for a predictable reason the first time, then no. Then the answer is no. No, not a viable relationship, open relationship model for you two. So this is a call that you're ultimately going to have to make in consultation with your boyfriend and after looking inside your own heart and knowing your boyfriend better than I do, making the call yourself. Hey, Dan, this is a 34-year-old bisexual male uh, in a relationship with a 24-year-old bisexual female. We have a great, loving, awesome relationship. We are getting married at the end of the year. Everything's great. Recently, however, 
at work, I have met a very interesting, wonderful person, uh, non-binary female transitioning to male polyamorous, uh, person that I have been hanging out with quite frequently. Um, the other day, wanting to share this person with my fiance, all three of us went out for drinks and had an amazing time, great connection, great conversations. Everybody was hitting it off with everyone together. My fiance and I have been mostly monogamous our entire relationship. So I popped a question about how would you feel if we added a third? She did not really take it well. She was deeply hurt by the question and has said that she has to reconsider even being friends with our new friend. How do I salvage this relationship that I don't want to lose with my friend and also be mindful of my fiance's feelings as well? Adding a third? You went out for drinks with your fiance and a coworker and the follow-up question for your fiance, your 10 years younger fiance, 24 years old, was not be fun to mess around. How do you feel about open relationships? We should have a three-way sometime. Were you attracted to that person? You wanted to go right to adding a third to your relationship, becoming a triad, proposing that, proposing that to the person you proposed to after one drink with this coworker. I can see why your fiancé might have been thrown by that. The reaction she's having doesn't want to be friends with this person. She's really projecting onto this person the problem, right? She's blaming that person, your coworker, for the ask, for the problem. And the problem is you, not your coworker. Have you cleared this with your coworker? Is your coworker interested in joining your relationship, becoming a tribe? And maybe, in fairness, quickly, maybe you meant have a three-way, adding a third. But that's not what you said. So I'm just running with adding a third. And it's often true when people are relationships with someone that they want to stay with and that person fucks up and some third party is involved, rather than working through that with the person they're in the relationship with, who is the person that they fucked up, they project all of their anger onto that third party because that doesn't threaten the relationship that they've invested so much in already. If I were talking to your Fiance, if she were the one who called me and said, oh, I never want to see this coworker friend of my fiance's ever again, I would encourage her not to be angry with the coworker. I would ask her what the coworker knew and when they knew it. it seems to me that the person who fucked up here, the person that she needs to work through this with, perhaps be angry at, is the fiance is you, caller, you. So there's so much that you don't mention. You didn't leave a callback number. I would have called you back. Have you ever had a conversation with your fiance about being in an open relationship? Have you ever had a conversation with your fiance about polyamory? Have you discussed monogamy? Did she go into the relationship expecting monogamy? Was she flying into this with the default setting expectations of a monogamous commitment because it was a serious relationship because you had proposed to her? Had you done any of really the legwork that might lead up to a conversation about potentially adding a third for a night or a lifetime. And if you hadn't, if you haven't still, 
You have work to do. You have amends to make. I'm telling you, your fiance, she's not mad at your coworker, who she's only met one time, had drinks with once. Your coworker is an abstraction. And right now your coworker is a stand-in for you. She is mad at you. And if you two can't address that honestly, confront that honestly, work through that together honestly, that's going to be a problem going forward in your marriage. That is a fault, a fissure that's already opened up in your relationship that even after marriage is going to continue to grow if you guys can't address that directly. So go to your fiance and apologize. Absolve your coworker. Get her to at least agree that this was your fault. Your coworker, who for all I know, you don't say, knew nothing about this, may not even be interested in becoming your third. Coworker isn't at fault here. You are. Take responsibility for spooking your fiance like this and then get on the same page about the commitment you've made, about the expectations she has, about whether she's even open to three ways or open relationship, open marriage, polyamory going forward. And then maybe at some point in the future, you can readdress the possibility of adding a third for a night or a lifetime. Could even be this guy could be the potential third in the future. If you can get your fiance to stop projecting her anger onto him, anger that should be rightly and right now directed at you. Hi, Dan. 31-year-old by poly woman from the Midwest in a long-term relationship with my fiancé, and I also separately date women. So I have a question regarding my 12-year-old son and porn. I noticed the other day on a friend's post on Twitter a comment from one of those first name, bunch of numbers, generic usernames, uh, and it so happened to be the same name as my son. I've noticed Twitter's algorithm will put people you follow or who follow you in the top of threads. So... Fast forward to yesterday, he needed help with something on his phone. Well, my curiosity got the best of me, and I looked through his search history. A lot of his exploration happened to be Twitter, mainly my friend's Twitter account, where she advertises for her OnlyFans, which obviously has a lot of dudes. She's someone that I've been casually dating for a few months, and I absolutely adore her. But this is an issue for me for a few reasons. First, she also has a child who we all spend time with together. Second, her and I are sexually involved, and we decided to do content for her OnlyFans together in the future. Third, I also have been toying with the idea of starting an OnlyFans, and her following on OnlyFans would be helpful to get me started, and if we made content together for her OnlyFans, which would be advertised on her and my Twitter accounts. Upon looking at his other device that doesn't have parental restrictions, he also has been on Pornhub quite frequently. The issue isn't porn. We talk quite openly, and we have a great relationship. He is an extremely smart, responsible, kind person, but I am hung up on the what ifs. What if he says something to her son? What if he sees me? I talked to my fiancé, and he agreed that we definitely need to talk to our son, but we aren't sure how to. I feel as if asking or telling him not to look at her Twitter account for the sake of awkwardness, let alone the other things mentioned before, would be too tempting. There's always something about that forbidden fruit, you know. Me blocking on his phone would just lead him to use his tablet or other devices. I don't want to bring up looking at his search history so he feels the need to erase his. I want to be sex positive, embracing his coming into teenage years. 
I don't want him to feel ashamed or have to hide things. There's also the fact that he could see his mom naked. <laughs> so I also want to shy him away from Pornhub and more women-directed ethical porn websites, considering how Pornhub isn't the best in that department. So, Dan, what do we do? If your son's old enough to look at porn, he's old enough to have a conversation with his mom about sex work, about the people out there who make porn. And I don't think 12-year-olds have a reasonable expectation of total privacy. You were following up on his internet use, on where he was going, because you are a responsible parent. And what you saw was that your friend is looking at porn made by the woman you're dating. I think that's a conversation that you can have with him, that he needs to respect her privacy. He's friends with her kid. He shouldn't talk with her kid about what he's seen. That would be a violation of your girlfriend's privacy. And while it's fine to enjoy the porn that is pushed out there into the world for us to enjoy, we have to respect the people who create that pleasure for us. And that means respecting their autonomy, their right to do it, paying them fairly, and also respecting their privacy where friends and family are concerned and coworkers and everybody the fuck else. You can have that conversation with your son. You should have that conversation with your son. You should also have the conversation with your son that I've advised other people to have with their kids about porn, about how much anger and misogyny is stirred into porn and to learn to spot it and not succumb to it, not be seduced by it. You can push him to a site like if he's 12 years old and he's already looking at porn online, uh, make love, not porn. It's a terrific website, uh, which is a lot of user generated porn content. I love the motto of that site created by Cindy Gallup, uh, pro sex, pro porn, pro knowing the difference, but you can't control ultimately where your son is going to go on the internet, what he's going to look at. And if you want to make porn yourself with your girlfriend, if you want to create content, as they say, well, that gets you to a place where you have to have a greater degree of difficulty conversation with your son. You have to have a here there be monsters kind of conversation with your son. If you keep looking at my girlfriend's account, at her OnlyFans, at her, you know, the promotional material that she's pushing out, you're going to see your mom having sex with her girlfriend. And you probably don't want to see that. And I don't want to think about you seeing that. So let's block. There's a billion other women on the internet creating content for horny, about to be teenage boys. And you have options, but you don't want to be looking at her stuff because you might see mom stuff. And then ultimately you're not going to be able to control what your son decides to do, where he decides to go on the internet or what he decides to look at. The only way to make sure that your son never sees you on the internet having sex is to never put anything on the internet that features you having sex. I mean, I would hope your son wouldn't want to see that, but if you can't live with the possibility that your son has or might, or your son's friends might, then you can't put it on the internet. So you have some conversations you need to have with your son right now, mom, and you have a decision you need to make about putting your own content online, creating your own OnlyFans, knowing that your son is like everybody else's son, like everybody else's kid on the internet and might 
see your content. You can control for that, but you can only control for that in advance. That's not being sex negative. I'm not shaming people who do porn. There's a lot of people out there who do porn who have kids. That's a difficult relationship to navigate. But the control you have is in advance. Once you've put that content on the internet, you don't have control over it. You don't have control over who looks at it, including your own kid. So something to factor in, something to weigh before you make the decision about participating in your girlfriend's OnlyFans content or creating your own content yourself. You sound compassionate, smart, thoughtful. You say you have a really great, close relationship with your son. And if your son is like most people's kids, you tell them that you open this box and you're going to see mom naked. They might never open this box again, highly likely. But again, you're not going to be able to control whether they do. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with John McWhorter, linguist and associate professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University. He is the author of the new book, Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. Hey, Professor McWhorter, thank you so much for demeaning yourself by coming on my show. <laughs> Hi, Dan Savage. Not demeaning at all. <laughs> now, I may be biased. I use a lot of swear words, but I have not <laughs> enjoyed reading a book so much in years. I absolutely devoured this book. That is such a nice thing to know. I wrote it to, to, for enjoyment, and so I'm glad that it worked with at least one person. From the musical comedy references, which musical comedy queen <laughs> me so appreciated, to, to <laughs> the deep dive into language and the history of profanity, it just it's just such a thrilling, interesting book, and it goes everywhere. That the first thing <laughs> I learned reading it that surprised me uh, was that speech, regular, everyday chit-chat comes from one side of our brain, but curse words are fired off from the other side of our brain. What is that about and what does it tell us about profanity? Well, it's a funny thing because the curses seem like they're words, and of course they start as words, but really they're these eruptions that come from that more animalian part of the brain. I guess I shouldn't put it that way, but it's more about the Dionysian than the Apollonian. And it means that Curses, for example, often don't make any sense. That's why. And so, for example, if you say, what the hell is that? What the fuck is this? What part of speech would you say that the hell or the fuck, if I may, are? And the thing is, they're not. It's that they are right brain eruptions in the middle of sequences put together by the left brain of vanilla language. And so curses are, of course, words originally. But really, if we started everything all over again, there'd be some different word for them than words, because what they actually are is gestures in the shape of words. So when you say, what the fuck is that? You're not saying, what the sexual intercourse is that? It's <laughs> no. not an adjective. It's not an adverb. No. What the it, fuck it, is it, that? And what the fuck is that? What the fuck <laughs> is fucking that? It is an expletive, and it's an eruption that you use to lend color to the part of the sentence that actually makes sense. And we learn these sorts of things without thinking about it. So fuck, the, the history of fuck, I, I think, is really best encapsulated or, or uh, the best example of how it's evolved is there was a guy named Simon Fuckbutter. Who yeah. was Simon Fuckbutter and what does the fact that that was a surname 600 years ago, 700 years ago, have to teach us about the word fuck? Well, the funny thing is that 
Simon Fuckbutter wasn't anybody in particular, nor was Roger fucked by the navel. These were just names that a person could have that may have been processed as a little bit salty, but they were real. We find them in sober documents. This is what somebody could have as their name and be taken seriously as a member of society. And that's because back in the 1100s and the 1200s, words about sex and words about excretion were giggly. You know, they were salty, but they weren't considered profane. They weren't bad words in the sense that you didn't ever refer to these things in polite society. And that meant they could be in names. And it also means that those are the earliest attestations of fuck that we have. For some reason, it doesn't pop up in Old English, but then there's only so much Old English to be consulted. I'm almost sure that the word existed then. But after that, where you get it is in these names where it's clear that people were using the word fuck with abandon. And there's a guy that you read about, Henry Fuckbeggar. I doesn't take much imaginative leap there to figure out how he or his father got that name. Um, You write that profanity first involved the holy, only later the holes. One of the things that the book is about Mm. is the evolution of what we culturally as societies regard as profane or offended by. And we call them swear words because, you know, we used to swear that we're telling the truth. We used to swear to God. We used to swear on Jesus's bones. Uh, and that meant something important. And now we call them swear words, even though we're not swearing in that sense. So, you know, the, the understanding, the meaning of the word swear has evolved. But exactly. how did it go from holy to holes? <laughs> Funny, I forgot about that sense. Yeah, it starts with blasphemy. The idea being that the worst thing you can do is swear to God in vain, i.e. not really meaning it, because this is society. It's basically oral, and so swearing is a signature. Most people are illiterate, and so swearing is taken seriously. Then what happens is that in the 1400s, and especially the 1500s, a new class of words are considered really dirty ones that you are not supposed to use except in extreme situations. And it's one part the Reformation makes you think more about your individuality. It's one part architecture that allows more privacy. And it's one part something that no one has ever really figured out. Nobody, you know, emblazoned this in the sky at the time. But it gets to the point that matters private about the body and what goes into it or comes out of it are now considered as, you know, not, not, not polite as the blasphemy words used to be. And so it's not that suddenly the blasphemy words are no longer blasphemy. They are. But then you have this new set, and that is where you get shit and fuck and the like being considered bad words, whereas words for the penis and the vagina get words like that, which, you know, even if you don't know a whole lot about it, you can tell they're very formal words. They're not original English words. They're these Latinate euphemisms. And we have this situation where you either say dick, or if I may, pussy, and those are dirty. Then you have penis and vagina, which you think of fluorescent lighting and being in a waiting room. But not just ordinary words in between. Like in Old English, the word for penis was pintle. And that wasn't dick, and it wasn't penis. It was pintle. You had a pintle. We barely have a word like that because of the sacredness that those body parts took on in terms of language at a certain time. How did dick defeat cock? How did dick become the <laughs> word that we use? Even though cocksucker continues, uh, mm-hmm. we all people throw that around. People use that. People use that affectionately. People use it as an insult. But you write that dick is dick is the default word when we're not saying penis. We're gonna yeah. use a word. It's dick, not cock. How did that happen? Well, what what we know happened is that it just became 
the more fashionable term, and almost certainly it was because curse words always the profane profanity needs refreshing. And so there's a reason why you say goddamn as much as damn. There's a reason why you say bullshit as much as shit. And for a very long time, the default word for for penis in our vulgar register was was cock. And that goes all the way up to about the 60s. It's actually surprisingly late that dick is truly attested in that meaning. It's only in the 1890s that you have a really certain reference. There are ones from the 1500s that I highly suspect are dick being referred to in that way, but they're a little ambiguous because dick could also just mean guy or fella. And it's certainly from that reference that Dick came. But for a long time, it was cock, which started out as a now extinct word, pillicock. And then people started just saying cock for short. You'd think that it was about chickens, but it wasn't. And so even as late as the 60s, you have Kurt Vonnegut and one of his characters saying, you know, drop your, what is it? Drop your socks and show your cocks or something like that. Drop and that marks your cocks and grab your socks. Right. Drop your and grab your socks. And that marks the book as a little bit old. I remember in college, a female friend of mine in the early 80s used cock rather than dick quite casually. But I think she was the last generation, and dick completely took over after that. And some of these things are just – it's drifting. It's like the hems of skirts go up and down. But certainly cock's place has been taken – pardon so, me for that disgusting noise. But now – Cock has specialized, and so cock is now more pornographic. It's more sexual. It used to be a more default word. It moved from holy to holes, and you argue in the book, I think very persuasively, that the new profanity is about identity. It used Mm -hmm. to be an offense against God. Then it once the emergence of sort of privacy, when we were no longer shitting and fucking in front of each other all the time, and that wasn't (laughs) something that we were just used to and commented on. It shifted to identity. When was that and what does that signify? Well, that signifies that what profanity actually consists of is what a society is hung up about. And at one point for Anglophones, it was the blasphemy. And then it became the excretion and the body parts. And now we have what we classify in terms of vocabulary as slurs, but which really, in terms of their place in society, how they're regarded, how we handle them around children, how we censure people for using them, they are the new profanity. And that's really only happened over the past few decades. And so I think both you and I probably say fuck several times a day. And I would not say that I'm an especially profane person. It's just that the word doesn't have the power that it had even a couple generations ago. But that doesn't mean that people curse more now. It means that we have different curses. And to the extent that a person is punished for using a word, that you never use them around children, that you wish the word didn't exist, that the word has you know euphemisms all over the place. That's profanity. And so I think an anthropologist would recognize the N-word today and the way that we treat it as in, an indication that it's become not just a slur, but a matter of profanity. There's a taboo around it. And that's also increasingly true of, if I may, faggot. And then a word that I have a hard time saying, no matter where it is, but C-U-N-T, when you call somebody that, those are now profanities in American English in particular, rather than just slurs. I was reading uh, the book on A Long Flight, and I got to the chapter on the N-word, which you use in the book as sparingly as possible, but you use it. And I had to put the book away or, or skip to the next chapter. I just skipped to the next chapter because I was really momentarily worried that someone might look over my shoulder and see pasty-ass, white, translucent me 
reading a book with so many N-words on the page, even yeah. as sparingly as you tried to use them, there was a page where there were like 10 of them. And I was just like, I yep. can't even be caught with this book in my hands in public. That's how powerful the taboo has become. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny. I actually, people are going to think I'm being coy. I didn't think that much about how extreme that was going to come off when the book came out. I figured, well, I'm black. I can do it. And good, because it'll make for a more graceful chapter than me euphemizing for 30 pages. But when the Times did an excerpt from that chapter, the excerpt was people talked more about the fact that the N-word was actually spelled out than the contents of the excerpt. And all of this, as you're implying, is an indication that the word is no longer just the slur that it was until roughly the mid-1990s. Now it is a taboo word. It is profane. It's one of our magic words, so to speak. And that's because language develops, society develops, and they often do it in tandem. I thought the chapter on the N-word was really moving. And I, I kind of wish everyone would read this book, particularly people, white people, who feel that mm-hmm. they have a right to use this word because they hear African-Americans using this word in very right. complicated ways, uh, yeah. affectionately, uh, in a self-deprecating way, a way of acknowledging that the world may disparage you. But when I say this word to you and we're both African-American, we're acknowledging that that is a lie, that exactly. we're pretending that we don't value each other when clearly we do to explode the lie. And exactly. I just thought it was – I was really moved by that chapter, particularly the last paragraph. And I would hope everyone out there listening, whatever their race, would pick this book up and read it. Yeah, me too. And <laughs> in that chapter, it was um, it was delicate because, you know, I can imagine being a white guy, 25 or older, who has never known an America where hip-hop wasn't the dominant pop music. They've grown up with this music. At no point did they think of it as exotic black people music. For them, it's just music. And they like it. They dance to it. It unites their generation, you know, no matter what color we're talking about. And they hear this word being used, and it means roughly buddy, or sometimes it's a kind of a dismissive but affectionate kind of word. They've heard it all their lives in their favorite music. That music is pumping into their ears to an extent that was alien before the kind of technology that we have now. They're listening to the music all the time. And so they're thinking they're going to use that word that means buddy because it's in their music. Most people who listen to it are are white. Mm -hmm. And yet, no, it's just not that simple. And I can imagine how they feel. I can put myself in their head. They're thinking we don't mean it that way. But nevertheless, they're not black, and a lot of people are going to see it differently. That was a very delicate couple of pages in the chapter because linguist me says, you know, basically things happen and they're going to happen and your job is not to judge. But I'm also a cultural critic and a black one. And so, of course, I'm going to have my opinions. And then on top of that, I'm a black cultural critic who's often called, quote unquote, contrarian. And so my views on the issue are not going to be those of, you know, to take somebody at random, Ibram Kendi. You know, I'm probably going to have a different view. So what do you do with that in a book that you intend as a jolly romp through profanity? So, yeah, that was th- those were difficult pages. Let's talk about faggot. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, you know, the original meaning, a uh, bundle of sticks, which isn't in dispute. One of the first things I learned when I came out from some of the first gay men I met was that we were called faggots. People called us faggots because they used to stack bundles of sticks around us when they burnt us at the stake. That isn't true. No. <laughs> and it's funny, I always, I had heard that. But no, that's that was never the practice um, in terms of killing someone for being gay. That was not generally how it was done. That, that word actually has the weirdest 
history, the most fascinating kind of turns and hairpin turns. It's basically, it's a bundle of sticks and the bundle of sticks was as important as, you know, say charging your phone, like the, your energy source. And so faggots were it's basic to society, included in people's wills. And you can use them to fill out the ranks of an army if you're trying to make it look bigger when the general comes to review the army. And so you have these faggots that are being used to look like men. Next thing you know, you have women being called faggots, the idea being that the faggots are now personalized, but of course it's a slur that you're just a, a, a bunch of sticks. And so women Bag can be bones. faggots. Yeah, right. And then it's children. And apparently into the 50s, there are people in the UK who were referring to kids as, oh, you little faggots, with, with a kind of dismissive affection. And then because supposedly women are weaker, the word gets applied to gay men. And next thing you know, you have bundle of sticks and, and gay man being having the same label. One of the oddest things, but that is that seems to be what happened. As I read uh, along, I was hoping you might address the way these words are sometimes used during sex. And maybe that's just a whole other book. Um, mm -hmm. you know, bitch gets its own chapter, faggot. Even the mm -hmm. end word. Often when these slurs come up on my show, it's because someone – wants to use them during sex is aroused by mm -hmm. hearing them and paradoxically mm -hmm. it's usually the person who might be the target of that slur outside the bedroom and would mm -hmm. object to having it hurled at them outside the bedroom who wants to hear mm -hmm. it inside the bedroom and that mm -hmm. attests to the power of the words I, I think the fact that it never comes up for dyke really buttresses your argument that dyke may be one of the few words that's been entirely appropriated exactly. in a way, successfully appropriated. You write appropriation will just yield a second meaning coexisting with the earlier one. A word can develop a new meaning while the old one persists alongside. And that's yeah. from the N-word chapter. But Dyke really kind of proves, or Dyke may be the exception, as you argue, because mm -hmm. the old one doesn't really persist alongside it. It's not the insult. So I don't hear from lesbians who want to be called Dyke during sex, but I hear from gay men all the time. Right who want to be called right. faggot during sex. And huh. when I hear from people who have a problem with someone wanting to use the N-word during sex, it's almost always the white partner of a black person who wants that word tossed around during yep. sex or introduced it during sex. What is, Do you have any opinions as a linguist? Is that something you've ever thought about? Is that the next book? You know, Dan, oddly enough, and I'm not just saying this for the sake of media and, and, and spicing things up, Somebody was telling me about that with the N-word just a week ago. I, somebody, had, somebody knew somebody who had that problem. And indeed, it was the, the black gay man who wanted that to be used, and the white guy didn't want to do it. Oddly enough, just two weeks ago. Yeah, actually, it was a, a gay white man who was telling me that that was something that a black partner of his had wanted, and he wasn't up for it. What a coincidence. But yeah, I completely understand how that would be because for some people the theatrical subjugation is a part of you know part of how you get turned on during sex and so it would mean that using those words would be part of the play acting so i'm not surprised i didn't i didn't know it about faggot but it doesn't surprise me because you know i heard about the n-word just two weeks ago and it seems very intuitive to me some people enjoy that sort of thing and the language will certainly go along with it I think theatrical subjugation may be the best term I've ever heard applied to this kind, this dynamic. <laughs> I, I think it really does. I'm it provides a kind it. of it provides a kind of catharsis for many people. It's not that they yeah. feel that they're somehow subhuman or should be dehumanized or treated no. in this way, but they're aware that there are people out there who would treat them that way. And sort of jumping into it theatrically for a moment 
really can right. purge those emotions. Or feeling overpowered. I'm just I'm just guessing, but feeling overpowered for some people maybe as long as it's theatrical and it's play acting is something that they might enjoy, and the language would go along with it. Yeah, I'm just guessing, but yeah, I'm not surprised by that. So uh, we had a couple of calls that we wanted to to throw at you. Would you mind hanging out for a couple of uh, listener calls? Okay, sure. Hi, Dan. Uh, Two-year-old queer male here. I uh, Maybe I'm just becoming a curmudgeon, uh, but I have a question about the new sexuality terms like demisexual and sapiosexual. Whenever I hear someone say that I'm only attracted to someone I have an emotional bond with, or I'm only attracted to someone who I find intellectually stimulating, to me, it just sounds like straight guys saying I'm only attracted to hot girls. How am I wrong? Demisexuals, sapiosexuals, fraysexuals, graysexuals, you teach at Columbia. You must mm-hmm. have observed the proliferation of new sexual orientations over the last decade and change or new words to describe sexual orientations that the coiners yeah. insist have always existed. Yeah. What is up with that? I would be inclined to think that what we're seeing is official labels being given to orientations that have always existed. And of course, people can be kind of boutique-y about these things, and there's always an extent to which a fringe group of people are going to recruit this sort of thing to display affectations, etc. But in general, it seems to me if you look at history and you look at other societies and, you know, depending on your social circles, just observe people, you can see that what we've had labels for until relatively recently was extremely blunt and crude and limited. And so I'm happy to see these different labels being given to ways of being, as long as the way of being seems genuine. And I am not one for telling someone they're faking unless it's rather obvious. And so, yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of like seeing this, this flexibility. I think of various you know, men and women I knew when I was a kid. Well, you can kind of guess that when they grew up, they were not going to be leave it to beaver kinds of people. And I think it's probably easier for them to be, to be themselves now than it was back then. You know, people come in all stripes. So, yeah, I don't think that these terms are being created just to confuse. In for the most part, there are going to be certain people who like to play, certain people who like to get attention. But I would be hesitant to say that that's all of what's going on. I think that we're just seeing that labels for the true diversity of people and what they like and, you know, where they go. Uh, I agree. I I guess my only quibble is the claim that like demisexuality is a sexual orientation because it seems to me that somebody could be gay by lesbian Mm -hmm. and also only attracted to, to people that they have an emotional connection with. What is demisexual? Demisexual is you're only attracted to people that uh, you have developed feelings for, which used to be considered how everyone was supposed to work. And now there are people claim that this is a specific sexual orientation. And I guess maybe I'm just being a dick and people can have more than one sexual Mm -hmm. orientation. But it seems to me that if gay, bi or lesbian people can – or straight people can all do this thing or experience this thing, Mm -hmm. that it's operating on a different level. It's not – it's core. Is yeah. Orientation. Okay. If demisexual means that you only fall in love with, you're only attracted to the person inside as opposed to outside. I would be inclined to think that whatever that is, it is not a sexual, a sexual orientation, that it, it is a something else. 
I would give it a different kind of label. I wouldn't say there isn't that kind of person, but okay, yeah, that to me, it strikes me as something orthogonal to what, you know, what you are attracted to sexually. Yeah, I can, I can see how a person might be a little uncomfortable with that. Particularly somebody who is persecuted for their sexual orientation to then see straight people out there who not collectively all straight people are not responsible for the oppression of queer people, but to see straight people out there claiming the mantle of sexual minority because they're a fray sexual and fray sexuals are people who lose interest in someone sexually as they get to know them better. The more intimate the relationship becomes, the less sexual interest there is. We used to call those people emotionally stunted assholes. Now we know that this is a sexual orientation and someone is helpless in the face of it. It's an orientation. Okay, yeah, I don't think I gave the right And for me as a gay guy who got called faggot and beat up every, you know, constantly in grade school and high school before I was ready Mm -hmm. to come out because everybody else could tell I was gay, to listen to somebody straight and say, I'm a sexual minority too because I'm a fray sexual makes my head explode. <laughs> I think that we live in a time when there's an awful lot of reinforcement, partly because we're all in a village because of the internet. We're mm. feeling special. Everybody likes to belong to some kind of group. Everybody likes to be different in some way. And I see that that might be happening with these new, new notions of sexual orientation. Yeah, I will call this, these are emotional tendencies, not your your sexuality okay john here comes another one hey dan so apparently i made a gender faux pas i said to someone that i had just met um responding to some good news they shared about a an achievement i said you go girl and they pointed back at me and they sarcastically said uh, kind of angrily uh not a girl <laughs> And I, I apologized immediately and I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Thank you for letting me know. Uh, that's just a phrase from the 90s. And they were like, I've never heard of it. And then I was again, I was kind of taken aback and I was, I was thinking in my mind, well, number one, I'm kind of old. And number two, they're kind of young. And number three, I, I should stop saying that, but, but like I just met that person and there's no clue whatsoever that they aren't female identifying. Like I had no idea. Shouldn't there be some kind of a clue or is that that's probably none of my business? Like they can dress as femininely and do their hair all feminine and have boobs and whatever and they can be non-binary or a boy or whatever it is. Do we need to retire you go girl because I say that to men and and I can give up things like that for the progress of society but I'd prefer not to. So Professor McWhorter, you go girl, is this now a slur? No, it's a slur I guess depending on who who you say it to. No, I think there are two issues here. One, a person who uses it might as a civilized person today Make sure that the person they're talking to is somebody who, you know, identifies as a girl. And, you know, let's face it, most of the time, the person you're talking to is going to be somebody who identifies as a girl. And therefore, the word, the the expression is as appropriate as it was 25 or 30 years ago. And however, one should one should be careful because these days often a person who presents feminine, et cetera, may wish not to be thought of as a girl. And if they are a they, you go, girl, might. They might consider that offensive. They might not. 
in my experience, but they might. It's something to think about. But then on the other hand, I'm really, I have to tread lightly here, but I think that our pronouns and our ideas about gender and identity and non-binariness, et cetera, are changing so quickly. And I think I'm all in favor of the changes, but the change is happening so quickly that I think people under a certain age to be civilized people in this society need to understand that people over a certain age are going to make mistakes. So the idea is to politely tell somebody, you know, actually, I prefer they, or actually, I don't consider myself a girl. But it has to be understood, for example, that with pronouns in particular, pronouns are a very deep-seated part of language. For somebody who's over, you know, even 30, to adjust to using they in the way that we do today, it's our responsibility to do it. But you're occasionally going to make mistakes. The idea of somebody being neither a boy nor a girl, I completely understand it. It's great. But it takes a little practice to get used to it. And so to expect somebody 50 to be as supple and immediate in observing these new ways of speaking and these new ways of seeing things as somebody 11, I think is not fair. And so on the one hand, I think people who are of a certain age have a responsibility to try to bend and understand and to change. But on the other hand, people under a certain age need to understand that Perfection isn't going to happen, or at least not immediately. And these things are happening so quickly. I mean, just everything has turned upside down just over about the past 10 years and all power to it. But when it's this fast, people are going to make mistakes. And I think that we need to understand that that doesn't mean that the people are discriminating or inconsiderate or backwards. People aren't perfect. How often is a mistake a perfectly reasonable assumption when someone is female presenting, femme presenting? Uh, and has all the secondary sex characteristics uh, of a biological female, and you say, you go, girl, that's going to be an accurate assumption 99% of the time, 98% of the time. And to expect people not to make those sorts of assumptions. I I went through this as a gay parent. People would see me out with my infant and ask about my wife, and I didn't fall down on the floor and claim to be traumatized by what to me seemed a perfectly reasonable assumption a human being, including myself, might make. But I would yeah. correct them and move on. And that seems – that what you're advocating, some patience, some understanding. You know, when I was a new parent, there weren't a lot of gay male parents out there. Correct and move on uh, and understand mm-hmm. that you're part of the change in the world uh, that this person yeah. may be encountering for the first time. And But now there's just this like immediate – claim to harm and Uh and impugning of motives that I find counterproductive if you want people to grow and change into not making these kinds of assumptions, getting comfortable with they as a singular pronoun. And I find that baffling because I'm old, because I'm in my 50s. (laughs) I think what you're seeing is part of a whole other problem that I actually have had a lot to say about, especially over the past year, which is a, a redefinition of trauma. And it's because there is a certain kind of person who derives a sense of comfort and group fellowship and purpose in claiming victimhood beyond what any reasonable analysis would consider sensible. And that's not to say that there aren't terrible things that people do to people. That's not to say that there aren't small torps that are done where we need to check them and to talk to each other about them. But yeah, to claim injury as that person who, you know, seems very much like what used to be considered a girl. For that person to be angry and to claim injury when somebody says, you go girl, that's a pose. That's somebody who is is striking a pose in favor of 
I think that what that person thinks they're doing is helping to change the world. But to claim trauma is exaggerated and unfair. And it's an element in our society that I think we need to work through more carefully. Trivializes trauma. Real trauma, exactly. Yeah. John McWhorter, linguist, associate professor of English and comparative literature, Columbia University. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, nine nasty words, English in the gutter, then, now, and forever. Buy this book. Read this book. It is such an entertaining and informative and erudite romp through the fever swamps of the English language. I loved it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old male gay male living in the South. I'm calling because I just had a weird interaction online. I like to think of myself as kink positive, but there was a gentleman who approached me saying he would only have sex if his actual dog was allowed to watch. I'm all for kinks, but I felt like the dog was being put in a really weird place. I didn't know really how to respond, and I said no. It felt like borderline animal cruelty. I was hoping that I wasn't kink shaming him and I didn't shame him personally, but I felt that it was a very weird request. And I guess I just don't know how I should have responded. I was hoping he maybe had some insight onto uh, the situation in general. I guess it all depends on the reason why he wanted the dog to watch or that the dog would be watching if it's just that putting the dog outside the bedroom causes the dog to howl and scrape at the door or chew up the furniture then allowing the dog in the room allowing the dog to sit in the corner even if it meant the dog might be staring he might have just been giving you a heads up that hey if you're uncomfortable with the dog staring at you while you're having sex that we might have to do it at your place because my place yeah the dog is going to be in the room sorry about that that's not necessarily a kink that's not necessarily animal abuse i hope it's on animal abuse to have sex with your dog in the room my god the things my dogs have seen (laughs) things our dogs have seen it's animal abuse that occasionally incidentally perhaps not intentionally have sex and the dog happens to be in the room if that's animal abuse holy shit i'm going to get we're all going to get hauled away every dog owner is going to get hauled away. Every cat owner. Who hasn't? Who owns a cat who hasn't been silently judged from across the room by at least one of their cats while they were fucking? I don't think that qualifies as animal abuse. But could be that he was testing the waters. Could be that he's turned on by the idea of the dog watching or this was his way of initiating a conversation about the dog maybe doing more than watching. I don't know. I can't say. I'd have to subpoena this dude and depose him and get him to answer questions no one should ask him truthfully under oath to get to the bottom of this. And you actually had the chance to get to the bottom of this when he said you have to be okay with my dog watching. All you had to say at that moment was, why? Not why do I have to be okay with it, but why is your dog going to be watching And if it was an innocent explanation, and if it was not sexualizing the dog, if it was just, yeah, I live in a studio apartment and I have a dog or can't put the dog outside the room because the dog freaks out, okay, well then maybe you could turn a blind eye to the dog or wear a blindfold. But if he started to breathe heavily or he got squirrely, didn't give you a 
straight answer about why the dog would be watching, yeah, it's kind of a little red flag there and you might want to pass. All right, before we get to your response calls, before we get to all that sweet, sweet listener feedback, let's read some of your tweets. Show Rouge tweets, anyone else desperate for a Use Your Words Dan Savage Edition fridge magnet set? Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I love that idea, Show Rouge. I may get to work on that. Thank you. Labot tweets about the guy who eroticized sticking stuff between his toes and called the Savage Lovecast about it. I love the feeling of having something between my toes. It's not sexy for me, rather super relaxing. Also helps me with restless legs. I use nail polish toe separators. And finally, Heather Chadwick tweets, wanted to comment about the lady with the guy whose gifts she didn't like. My guy didn't always give the greatest gifts or gifts I love, but I wish I could get any gift now. He's been dead for two years. I'm so sorry for your loss, Heather, and thank you for taking a moment to put things in perspective for the disgruntled gift getter. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and we appreciate everyone who posts to social media about the show. And now, your response calls. Hi, this is a call and response to episode 767 for the guy who was um, struggling with finding women who initiate. And uh, this is a fellow black man. So I'm speaking from personal experience and I am a pretty submissive man. So this is something that I've struggled with and I've got sort of three main points that I would suggest to kind of add to what Dan said. I think the first and most important thing is to find your inner platefulness, be able to have a lightheartedness that kind of invites women to want to initiate with you and want to pursue you, um, show off your body a little bit. Like I tried to wear Henleys or V-necks that kind of show off a little bit of collarbone, a little chest, wear some shorts that at most have like a seven inch inseam, show off your legs, show off your booty, do what you got to do to invite that attention. Secondly, I would say like what Dan said, a filter on dating apps. So I would say things like fuck the patriarchy or um, I am ethnically non-monogamous. So I would say that up front. And I have found that that tends to filter out the women who want to play the traditional gender game. Uh, So that's one way. And then the other thing is don't filter out women just based on your perception or their personality. I usually assumed that outspoken, aggressive, women would be the ones that would uh, basically provide what I wanted. And what I found is that there are a lot of quiet ones who will completely destroy you if they're given the opportunity. So uh, best of luck. And I think most of all, have fun and be patient. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the woman in episode 767, whose boyfriend has abuse issues in his past and substance abuse issues presently and was into cross-dressing and and cuckoldry, etc. I wanted to echo part of your answer from the perspective of someone who has struggled with substance abuse issues. I have 28 years of sobriety under my belt, and I can tell her that uh, she would absolutely not be doing him any favors by kind of transactionally taking him back because he's getting therapy and he's promised to stop using or to go into recovery and get clean. 
he will not be successful in doing those things if he is doing them to get her back. You are exactly right. He has to want and do those things for himself, for his own sake, because he wants to live. This is a response call to the guy in episode 767 who lost his dad last year and wanted to know about when to disclose that information while dating. Our stories are remarkably similar, so I wanted to weigh in and encourage you to take Dan's advice and not be so scared to disclose your experience. Last year, at 23 years old, I lost my dad too, and pretty soon after that, my girlfriend and I broke up. I'm so sorry for your loss, and it totally sucks to have everything pile on like that. For me, it made processing the grief even more difficult. I, too, have begun dating again and had questions about when to tell people. And like Dan said, I have found that there is often a natural lead-in during conversation, at which point it feels right to talk about family and therefore my dad's death. You aren't burdening someone by telling them your story, and I think you are demonstrating emotional maturity by being accountable for your own feelings. It's gone really well for me so far, and I anticipate the same for you. In fact, one of the girls I had gone on a few dates with is now becoming a really good friend of mine because we both lost parents young, and it's nice to have a support system like that. Good luck out there, and don't overthink it. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? You can call us at 206-302-2064 and leave voicemail. Or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My new book, Savage Love from A to Z, celebrating the 30th anniversary of Savage Love, the column available for pre-order now. You can pre-order it on Amazon and help send Jeff Bezos to space, or you can order it through your local independent bookstore, or you can go to savagelovecast.com slash shop to pre-order your copy today. Those books go on sale officially September 21st. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow John McWhorter on Twitter at John H. McWhorter. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on the installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that.